0: Then you know he thought it would be so he smiled and said okay you're, you're not bad but then in the fifth round uh ray told me we're not up so push him back and step up the pace and that's what i've done i thought okay if i'm not up i'm here to win i'm not here to you know i'm not here to come close second step up the pace go yeah you know fights comes in waves so there's times I, I backed off and there's times i pushed him back but i thought i was in the fight i can't say i felt i won or i felt i lost i thought i was in the fight you know um that last school card was a bit wide. I think. What's that like? So I think that's a bit disrespectful. But I was in. I was, I was definitely in the fight. I think I earned his respect. Um, definitely earned mine. But, um, yeah, man. Whole second. I want to be world champion. Anthony's trained really well. He's in. A, he's in great spirits. He's had really good sparring, and you know he's looking forward to the fight. 27 years. You know, it's. It's a little bit like I've died. You know, uh, in a way, because boxing's been my life. Uh, it's, you know, it's like, it has been my life. It's all I really know, you know, to a certain degree. So, you know, it's it is hard when you when you do hang them up, when you hang them up. It's hard to uh, try, tran- you know, transfer on into something different. Hey guys, you know what time it is? We're back again. Um. Probably a day late, but just life's got in the way, so apologies for that. I'm better late than never, I guess. And, you know, for some of you who've gone up for your afternoon runs, Dev, sorry it's a bit late, but I have tried my best. Just a lot going on in the build up to Christmas. You guys understand that, man. It's head scratching and frustrating. So, welcome back to the number one podcast in a sport where poor old Eddie Hearn is turning into 2011 Frank Warren. Who had that on their predictions for 2022 that Eddie Hearn would become the person he so despised back in the day for stopping people, leaving their contracts, underpaying people, not respecting them, not giving them opportunities. Now, all of a sudden, he's become that guy. And I guess it shows what goes around comes around, right? But, geez, a lot, a lot, a lot's happened without anything really happening. Right. So let's let's kind of look back on what we've. What we've had happen since we last spoke um to start with the uk for example josh warrington yeah i think eddie regrets having that that show on the same night as as england played france right and they're the these these are all big knocks to his ego i don't want to make this 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 part of the section about eddie but why not just move it to a Sunday? He could have easily done that. Probably would have saved himself a few quid. But what I noticed about that fight was everything after the England game, everything after England lost to France was, oh, man, let's just go and have a few beers, drown our sorrows. And no one really wanted to see Warrington. No one was that interested. No one was that invested in Ebony Bridges either. It was just a bit of a mess overall, just a complete and utter mess. And that's a lesson for people. We always talk about, boxing and football having overlapping crowds and they kind of do but they will always prioritize football over boxing the love for your football team the love for your country playing football will always be greater than your love for boxing it's just how it is like football's in us from when we're born and that's so it's been a chasing lesson for all the promoters who tried to be slick and i you know i don't think they lost that much money on it but as as live events go it didn't look good on TV But things that we need to talk about on that Leeds card Uh, Ebony Bridges beat some Australian that nobody knew until Eddie Hearn told us she was the most important person in Australia and it turns out she wasn't the most important person in Australia, she wasn't that good neither is Ebony Bridges for that fact and let's Let's address the elephant in the room. I can't tell you today whether Ebony Bridges takes steroids or not. Quite frankly, I don't even care. She's an irrelevance. What I can tell you is when you come from that figure slash bodybuilding background, at some point you have taken steroids, whether it's Anavar, whether it's Winstrol, whether you've taken the hardest stuff, whether you've taken a, a few growth hormone-releasing peptides and whatever. You have taken something it's likely that Ebony Bridges has taken something. That's just my opinion. You can see the change in her voice. She's too small physically. And her chest cavity is too narrow for her to have a voice that deep and that croaky. Now, she may say, look, I took that stuff in the past and I don't touch it anymore. Fair enough, whatever. But we need to have a ban on people who came from those sorts of backgrounds entering boxing because the science is telling us that there is, an extended period of benefit that you gain, if you ever lose it, in fact. Now I don't know about the other Australian she fought, because like we realised, she could have been shearing sheep two years ago, for all we know. But she was terrible too. So we ended up in the United Kingdom with two Australians, who between them, if you took both their brains out and put them in a bird, the bird would fly backwards. That's what Eddie Hearn gave us. That's what the global promoter gave DAZN customers. You imagine you're Shea of, the CEO of DAZN, and you've got to sit there and watch that heap of nonsense. And you're watching that because I don't think these two know how to box. And people can jump aboard this Ebony Bridges hype train. like, you know, I mean, if you, find, if you find those sort of women who are over the hill with fake teeth and fake everything else attractive, cool, well done to you. But she appeals to incels that's what she is, Eddie sells Ebony Bridges to Incel. so if you're a guy that's tweeting Ebony Bridges, if you're a guy that's talking her up, mate, I mean, enjoy your life in the incel club, I'm not a fan of hers, I don't think she's great for boxing, I think she's a triumph of marketing over everything, and I've never wanted Shannon Courtney to beat someone so much in my life, because whatever you say about Shannon Courtney, at least, I mean, she took her lumps on, on the circuit, we all know it, like, look, this is someone who's fought everyone in the amateurs. I remember, and I might be wrong, but I think she even fought Raven Chapman back in the day. So she's embedded in the sport. Who's this Ebony Bridges? And they found her on like the front cover of Zoo or something and said, yeah, we'll just sell this to the incels. Yeah. Good marketing by Eddie. Like, Not scraping the barrel much, are you? Um, I'm sure other people fought on that card, Hopi Price and so on and so forth, but we're not interested until we need to be interested. Yeah, we're just not. You know. And this is kind of the the match malaise we're going through because they're not on Sky anymore. So we have no reason to care. He can do as many IFL interviews as he wants. We don't watch him anymore. I mean, like, unless Umar's doing the questioning, who cares what people say on IFL? Nobody. Absolutely nobody. No one cares what Eddie says. No one cares what Ebony Bridges says. No one cares what the other unknown Australian says. She may have even, she may have been in. Neighbours, I don't know. I have no idea. And that brings us to the main event. Josh Warrington. Another headbutt controversy. Another lacklustre performance. Another defeat when he's supposed to win. When are people in Leeds going to get tired of the story? This is why people say that sometimes maybe northerners aren't the sharpest tools in the box. Now, I can't remember the opponent's name, I want to say Alberto Lopez, right? But he's the guy that, that stopped Isaac Lowe. And that's not Mauricio Lara. That's that's that like Mauricio Lara light diet version, watered down, suitable for vegans and people who read The Guardian. That's not Mauricio Lara. Now, if you follow me for long enough, I've said this. Josh Warrington is the ultimate world British champion. His name is built on fighting Brits who had seen better days. It was Selby, uh, Frampton, etc., etc. That's what he built his name on. And he lost to... Mauricio Lara wasn't even the best Mexican. And now he's losing to this Alberto Lopez, who probably isn't even the best Latin American. And so when will people start saying, maybe Josh Warrington's not that good? Because you can get away with a lot with a reckless head. You can get away with a lot throwing loads of punches per round. But eventually you're going to have to show some skills, some judgment, some expertise. And we'll talk about Terence Crawford as a good example of this later on. But Josh doesn't have that. He has those things that Brits think make you elite. He's fit, he's reasonably strong, and he's energetic and enthusiastic, if a bit basic. And every time the, the matchroom chariots roll into Leeds and they tell us that this guy's in for big fights, and you suddenly realize he's never been in a big fight. He hasn't fought a Santa Cruz. He hasn't fought a Navarrete. He hasn't even fought an Isaac Dogbo. So where's the evidence that Josh Warrington is better than British level? It's not there. Because when you list your great, featherweight and even super featherweights. Josh doesn't come in. He doesn't come into that discussion. Now he's probably not going to retire because there's more money. Cause like I told you though, those, those Leeds fans can be knuckle draggers sometimes. And that's not all the fans, but if you're from Leeds, they'll back you to the cow sheds and back. And that's, that's a good thing. But it's also like, God change the record. And I don't know how you fix warranty. I don't think you do. I think we're just looking at a guy on the downside of his career now. But we're also looking at this guy saying, I don't know if we can take your career seriously until you give Lara an opportunity to, to do what he should have done in the second fight. And if you can't do that, why not make a phone call to top rank and say, can we get Isaac Dogbo down to finally get his United Kingdom homecoming? Because there's a guy who showed what it's about. There's a guy who put himself in world level. That's not a world British champion. He was a world champion. Gained his belt as a world champion, lost his belt as a world champion, no Brits involved. But if you summarize that card, I guess it shows the decline that Matchroom have faced since Leaving Sky. And we'll, I want to talk about that in detail later on, but it does. And it shows that Matchroom are actually irrelevant to to where fans are mentally, because we're all looking to the future now. We're, we're aware that this is the end of one era, right? You know, you got your... All of our perennial favourites are north of 32, 33 years of age. With the exception of maybe a guy like Inouye. But everyone else, like Usyk's what? Mid-30s. Crawford's mid-30s. Spencer's heading into that mid-30s territory. Golovkin is late-30s. Canelo is early-30s. No, Joshua heading towards mid-30s. Wilder's mid-30s. Joe Joyce is late-30s. So all the people you get excited by. They're all getting old. So now we're looking to this new breed and saying, these guys are Boots and it's Virgil Ortiz. The guys we're getting excited about. Hearn's not part of those discussions. And that should be worrying because he's rapidly falling off the face of the earth and he can talk about being a global promoter. But what's the point of being a global promoter when you bring us Ebony Bridges and a sheep shearer? So what is the absolute point of it? You know, And he's going to keep doing that. You're going to keep digging up these, these people who are more famous for being extras on Ramsey Street or what, whatever it is that happens in Australia now, the Henderson kids. And none of us care. Because we've got bums over here that we could be putting on. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Ten a penny here. We've got YouTubers here. We've got everything. We don't need Australian trash coming over here. And then you tell us that these are good boxers and these are good fights when we know that they're not. And as boxing fans, I want you to do something quickly. I want you to just reflect and go, how do I feel about Matchroom versus how do I feel about Queensbury? Because for every ounce of deflation I have around Matchroom and their prospects going forward, there's so much excitement around Queensbury. Because Frank's maneuvered everyone, right? Yard's going to fight for three belts. Whatever you think of Yard and his record, that's twice his fought for a world championship. Boatsy hasn't. Olympic bronze medal and all, he hasn't. Right, The global promoter couldn't even do it for his Olympic bronze medalist. So Yard does that. Dubois mandatory. I think that's been called now, hasn't it? So he's mandatory for one of six belts. Joe is mandatory for the other belt. That's positioning. Sam Noakes moving up the ladder. Archie Sharp needs a bit of politicking to get himself in position too. So once again, let's go back to this question. Where's Eddie? Oh, we've got Hergovich, and Hergovic should be fighting for the mandatory. Oh, who cares? Really? Who cares? Nobody. We don't care about Hergovic because we saw Hergovic against the big Chinese guy, uh, Jile Zhang. And he literally got Jile Zhanged for that whole fight and got a gift decision. And so I think there are problems there. But for every problem Eddie Hearn's got right now, Frank hasn't. Frank is presenting us opportunities and hope with Dennis McCann, um, even Nick Ball. These are guys we can get excited by because Frank's not a global promoter. He promotes for British fans. And so we're invested in these guys. We're not dealing with failed page three girls and failed teachers and sheep shearers and shelf stackers we're not dealing with these people from Australia with Frank we're dealing with the here and now in this country which is what we need as British boxing fans and I'm going to go and contradict myself completely (laughs) by then talking about how good Crawford versus Avanestian was and I don't think it was good from a casual perspective where people just like to see a war I just thought it showed how elite Terence Crawford is it showed how how do you even describe this? How, how much of a generational talent Terence Crawford is? Because we haven't, we haven't seen someone do that to a top-level welterweight since Floyd. Like, the dissection. And let me be very clear about this. I think only five people have a chance of beating David Avanesian at welterweight. Crawford, Spence, Ennis, Ortiz Jr. And maybe Keith Thurman. They are the five people I believe today would beat David Avanesian at welterweight. Nobody else. So he's the sixth best welterweight on this planet. Well beyond British level. Well beyond European level. Quite rightly at world level. Just unlucky with the opportunities he's had. But credit, credit where credit is due to guys like Carl Greaves and Neil Marsh for finding him, building him, working with him. And kudos to them for that. We don't... We don't give people their flowers very often. In this situation, they 100% deserve their flowers for what they've done. So, having said all of that, it was like watching a cat play with a ball of string. Because I want to say it was a close fight. It was an intriguing fight. It was an interesting fight. But I don't believe Avanessian won a round. He may have won seconds of a round. He may have won a couple of minutes in total of the fight. He didn't win a round. Didn't look like he was going to win a round. And Crawford did what he wanted when he wanted. But he did that against some really intense pressure. this is what's going to make Evanesian incredibly hard to beat. And this is why I can imagine Conor Ben won't touch him. Evanesian will stand dead in front of you. And if you're a guy who likes to throw big, looping, wide punches, he will catch you and he'll keep catching you until you lose confidence in that attack and you lose confidence in your ability. And then you will crumble mentally and then he'll just take you out. You can't beat someone like a David Avanesian if you don't have 10 out of 10 fundamentals. You can't. He doesn't allow you to do that. Give some credit as well to Carl Greaves as his trainer for that. But when you go back and watch that fight, we're going to come on to to the ending in a second. But when you watch that fight, there's something that really impressed me about Crawford. And I've only talked about someone doing this once before. And it was in exactly the same round. If you go back to when Josh Taylor fought O'Hara Davis, it was nip and tuck. Josh was probably winning, but it was nip and tuck in the first two rounds until Josh felt he had the measure of O'Hara Davis. And he came out in that third round and imposed himself physically showed that he was the bigger man in there, the stronger man, could hit harder, could throw faster shots. And he did that to O'Hara Davis, and O'Hara looked shell-shocked. And it was the first time I think O'Hara was in there with someone who he realized he was better than he was. And I think Crawford did that with Avanessian. In that third round, he came out, and he let his hands go. He didn't let his hands go in the British way of just throwing punches, almost like you're hitting a heavy bag. He started to pick at David Avanessian. He started to create doubts, create sore points, areas you now have to protect with your elbows or your upper arms. He had David Avanessian sweating for the first time we have seen him sweating. I didn't even see him stressed as much in the Lamont-Peterson fight. And so Crawford does this in round three and he asserts himself. He stops running around the perimeter of the ring and he says, right, we're going to stay here now. I'm going to find out if you really want to be on the inside with me. And he does that. He switches up the intensity. And in round four, he does this thing that this is what marks him out as a great for me. It's, it's how many adjustments Terence Crawford can make and how he sequences them. So first thing is he changes the, the geography of the fight. So instead of it being at Vanessa and chasing Crawford across the perimeter of the ring, it's now actually banging in the middle of the ring. And Crawford's happy to stay there. Then he changes the the whole flavor of the fight. And remember, this is the guy who started the first round boxing orthodox and then switched to Southpaw when he realized that was where he was going to get his greatest success. So once he's moved the geography of the fight down to the middle, then he changes the nature of the fight. Now it's no longer about his jab and him controlling distance. Now he's looking for roots into the body. He's looking for ways through the guard. I'm gonna come through the middle of that guard, I'm gonna come round the side of that guard. There's nowhere for you to hide now. Round four was when Crawford said there's nowhere for you to hide. Now we find out if you can live in this rarefied air. And Avanessian said, I'm gonna try. But from round four, you could see it just wasn't for him. Crawford did nothing flashy, by the way. Nothing. It was just timing. Speed of punch, accuracy. He kept backing his skills. He kept backing his fundamentals. He kept backing his judgment. Making small tweaks. There were points where he'd put his lead hand in Avanesian's eyes and just shoot. Shoot that left hand going from left to right. You know, just to make sure that you couldn't get out the way of that shot. And it was like a searing effect. Like he's literally coming right across that liver. And you could see what he was trying to do, and it was impressive by Crawford. And it started to chip away, so that round four and round five, you could see Advanessian start to slow, start to second-guess himself. Because he'd done a lot of good things in the beginning. Now, I don't know if this was a tactical plan. Maybe I'll find out later. But he started to square up to Crawford when he realized, there's no point, you're going to get hit anyway. And he wouldn't make a choice on which way to commit, Orthodox or Southpaw, until he saw what Crawford did which is hard to do and you've got to give avanesian credit for having the the presence of mind and also the training to execute that and for a while that had crawford befuddled I until crawford then said well let me just stop running around giving him space and time to think and let me stay on top of him let me become his problem and thoroughly compelling to watch so by the sixth round crawford's just there in the pocket he's got avanesian's timing down pat Rips that left uppercut through the guard, lifts the head up, right hook to the chin, and Avanesian was out. He was out. Don't even bother counting that. Good night. Turn the lights out on your way out. Bang. Done. As textbook a Southpaw knockout as you're ever going to see, and that's against the sixth best Baltimore on the planet. That's not a setup fight. That's not a con job. That's not trying to pull the wool over the fans' eyes. That's a legitimate fight. If you can't fight Errol Spence, that's an acceptable mark-time fight for me. Imagine you're saying that the 6th best welterweight is a mark-time fight for Crawford. That's how elite he is. But it's not right to talk about that without talking about the, the glove controversy because that may have played a factor. I don't know. So what happens between the... The fifth and the sixth round, the referee notices that Crawford's gloves are disintegrating. That's the only word I can have for them. His Everlast gloves are starting to disintegrate, which isn't great marketing for the brand, by the way. So from what we were told, those Everlast gloves were custom made for Terence Crawford. Okay, fine. So if they're custom made, you expect them to have taken measurements of Crawford's hands, unwrapped and wrapped. So you can actually build something around that that conforms with the 10 ounce requirement. Okay, fine, you do that. But what leather and what stitching did you use? Because I don't know if anyone's ever had Everlast gloves. Don't get the Pro-Texas because the leather, it's not even real leather, I don't think. It feels like pleather to me. Or don't get the power locks because whatever they're made of, they're garbage. Any Everlast glove under 150 quid is trash. Trash. They don't last. The padding's horrible. The leather's not that great. But once you get to something like an MX or an MX Pro, even the Elite Pros, that's pretty thick leather. That shouldn't disintegrate. And having looked at those gloves, it didn't look like they used the, the MX leather. It looked like they used a lower grain of leather and they cut corners. And that's why the glove disintegrated. Because if you look at how the glove disintegrated, it fell apart the same way those Lonsdales from Sports Direct disintegrate. When the, the lateral shear forces of the glove just forced the stitches to go, huh, we ain't got time for this. So whatever Everlast did, that's a, that's a poor advert for their gloves because they looked terrible. They disintegrated at the thumb. They disintegrated on the outside of the hand. They, they looked terrible, like, like they hadn't expected Crawford's hands to be the size they were. And at no point do I blame Terence Crawford for this. This isn't glove tampering as much as people may want to say it. But it does create a problem. When a glove is properly stitched up and is reasonably airtight, there's a certain cushioning profile that comes with that anyone who's heavy handed has hit the bag knows yeah with the right gloves you can hear the air coming out the glove as it hits now some gloves don't do that for example I've had pro box gloves and the air doesn't come out quick enough so what happens is you hit the bag and your fist bounces off and it's annoying so you never really know if you've sunk it in or not when glove manufacturers get it right it's the right amount of air release so you get the cushioning effect but you also get the feedback. Now, when you've got a big gaping hole in both of your gloves, what happens is the air just flies straight out. So that cushioning effect is gone. So the glove becomes harder. So that's advantageous to Crawford. And is that why Evanesin was eventually knocked out? I have no idea. But in that situation, I don't know. I don't know what you do. So I think that what the referee said at the time, and give the referee credit, I forget her name. But she was a really good ref in the whole fight. So what the ref said, as she went over to the, to the commission, she said, guys, have a look at these gloves. They're finished. And so those guys are like, well, what, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to stop right now and go and get gloves? And she said, I'm going to let this go for one more round, and then we need to change these gloves. I think it's a fair compromise as a ref, but the ref doesn't understand the cushioning dynamics and how they change. Because her thing is the padding's still in there. But it's like, well, it's no longer padding plus air. It's now just padding. And that has a limited effect relative to what it could have been had they been properly stitched up. Perfect scenario. You stop the fight there and then and get the gloves. But then is that a satisfactory outcome for the fans who have paid to watch? You're going to get people booing and moaning. So I understand that there's a lot of pressure to to make things happen. So you wait three minutes. Someone runs to the back. There's enough time. You run to the back. You get the second pair of gloves. You bring them out. Crawford comes out, one comes out, yeah, the other. It's probably going to take two, two and a half minutes to do. That's fine. So now people are talking about there was something shady happening. I don't think there was. I just think it was an unfortunate situation. Um, Everlast needs to take ownership for that. And you know, maybe we need to stop using them as gloves unless it's MXs. No, in fact, they should just ban custom-made gloves. We should have off-the-shelf gloves so everyone's used to the, to the padding profile and the contact profile. I think that would be a lot easier if we just had standard fight gloves like the MX's, for example. Now, is it an advantage? Don't know. But it's not anything worth making noise about. I've seen that there's been a lot of discussion online about it's foul plays, this, is that. It's not. Crawford's not that sort of guy, and he didn't need the advantage. He was comfortably in control. But I guess it's a lesson, man. Make sure you come out with both pairs of gloves just in case something does go wrong. But overall... In terms of Terence Crawford, what does that tell us? It just tells us the guy's a bad, bad man and that he could probably hang in any era. When you've got that level of control over your fundamentals and your mentality, like he stayed so calm as the storm raged around him. He stayed so calm and he was able to make these adjustments as we talked about earlier. Small tweaks that if it didn't work, he switched back. If it did work, he carried on. And he made these small tweaks until he arrived at a fight plan in around round number five. And he knew that he could execute this consistently and deliver results. That is the mark of an elite fighter. That is the, that's the mark of an all time great. So for all you young guys who box out there, it's not about throwing loads and loads of punches at the pro level. It's about knowing when, how, and why you're throwing punches. And a lot of people don't take that part of the game seriously. A lot of people don't work on the intellectual side of boxing, the strategic side of boxing, because you could save yourself so much, so much risk by understanding what the right thing to do is when, how, and why a couple of interesting quirks about that card on Saturday. They had Cyborg, uh, Chris Cyborg, the MMA fighter. Was that her boxing debut? And it's hard, to, it's hard to be critical because she's quite old now. She's got to be in her late 30s, heading towards 40 now. But as a light middle, she looked absolutely terrible. Remember those time people were talking about her and Katie Taylor having some kind of crossover match or her and Clarissa Shields having some kind of crossover match? If I'm Hannah Rankin right now, I'm asking for a cyborg fight. Like, let me get my money. Let me get my my global attention i'm asking for that fight because i think hannah rankin's steamrollers cyborg and it's only in the boxing ring that we as boxing fans realize how how elite you have to be to be a good boxer like natasha jonas would play with cyborg you could give cyborg another 50 fights natasha jonas still plays with her uh, if savannah marshall could come down and wait that's a one-sided beating clarissa shields is a one-sided beating Um, even Kirsty Babington could give away five pounds and hammer her. I think from an MMA perspective, people have to respect how dangerous boxers are with their fists. Like we have to respect how dangerous these guys are with their chokes and their arm bars. And we respect that. That's why we don't go over there. But we need to stop people coming over here who think that's just an easy payday. Because from what I saw with Cyborg, and she was against the lady who looked like she took up boxing yesterday. Yeah, I know yesterday is after the fight. That's what I mean. It was terrible. And I don't hold out much hope for her getting better. It's just because you can either crack or you can't. You're not going to learn how to punch harder. doesn't work that way. But having said that, I'd be intrigued to see what Amanda Nunes could do in a boxing ring. But let's get Amanda Nunes while she's still fresh. Not with like a billion miles on the clock. Also, in terms of this whole BLK Prime presentation, I did like seeing Antonio Tava on there. Good to have Malinaggi on there. Good quality commentary team. I think I saw Zab Judah floating around there as well. So it's a good proposition. I just have no idea where the money's coming from. It seems that all of these people suddenly, out of nowhere, have access to cash to throw to throw these sorts of shows. And if you consider what happened back in March around the the US treasury it doesn't seem the money's come out of boxing it just seems that the money's coming out of different places draw draw whatever conclusions you want from that but it does we thought that there'd be less money and less opportunity the reverse seems to be true maybe maybe it's that whole hydra dilemma right you cut one head off and like 15 appear out of nowhere so let's just keep it in america and let's talk about teofimo lopez now Why anyone would agree to fight Sando Martinez beyond me? Like, style is horrible to watch. Terrible to watch. But he beat Mikey Garcia. And Mikey Garcia was considered to be one of the men at junior welterweight. He beats him. Okay, fair enough. Kudos to you. So Teofimo goes in there and doesn't look great. Gets the win. It's a controversial win. Gets put down. Is it a knockdown, is it a slip, is it a stumble? The fact is it's a knockdown, but was he really hurt? Probably not. Did he take Martin as seriously as he should have done? Probably not. Was his reaction after the fight disappointing? Probably. But here's here's what I do feel for Teofimo. Sometimes you can be too big for welterweight, too small for junior welterweight. Too big for lightweight, too small for junior welterweight or senior lightweight, whatever, super lightweight, that's what I want to call it. He seems to be caught between those two. Sando Martins, a bit, he's big at the weight, not huge at the weight, but he's, he's solid and mature and established at that weight. I don't think Lopez is. Like you see a lot of the exercising he does, and he's a very agile kid, right? He can do all of that stuff like breakdance, or he can do all the calisthenics, the, the muscle-ups and stuff. He can do all of that. But does he have that, that, that brute force strength where when he needs to turn it up on someone, he can. It doesn't feel that way. I think we've got to start looking at his career from a bigger picture angle. Okay, you look good against Richard Comey. Was that a lucky punch? Don't want to say that just yet, but you've got to start looking and going, were you dominating that guy physically? No. You fight Lomachenko, who's essentially a guy who's moved up from featherweight, small guy, and you'd had years to, to develop and execute a tactical plan, which is what you did. But when it turned into a real fight, you didn't impose yourself physically there either didn't impose yourself physically against George Kambosos. And now onto Sando Martín, you haven't imposed yourself physically there. So at what point are we going to start talking about the lack of physicality Teofimo Lopez has? At what point are we going to talk about the lack of tactical nous Teofimo Lopez has? At what point are we going to start talking about maybe Teofimo's in the wrong setup? At what point do we want to have that conversation? Because... It feels like the talent's starting to slip away now. And maybe he needs to be around someone who understands where he's going wrong. Because I think from, from all of our armchairs we can see that it's not quite right. He's not as polished as someone like Devin Haney. He doesn't seem to have that brute force that Javante Davis has, nor does he have that, that innate speed that Orion Ryan Garcia has. He's like a, like a really good fundamental-based boxer when he wants to be. But when it gets messy and physical as much as he likes to see himself as a brawler and this he doesn't seem able to cope with it that's why he's getting dropped he wants to be the bully in there without doing the bully type work is he spending enough time building up that that foundational strength is he spending enough time making sure that he can impose himself physically i don't necessarily think so so you look at that and go what would tank do to him i think tank would Put him down a few times. I think, I think Haney might be better suited to him because Haney hasn't got that, that pop in his shots. Ryan Garcia has. So what do you do? I think if you're Lopez, you start making changes now before the big money fights start rolling in. Because remember, he had all the belts and he lost them to a guy who couldn't lay a glove on Devin Haney. That tells you all you need to know. So I think there were some deep-rooted problems with, with Teofimo Lopez. You know, when he's le- leaned back on the rope going, have I still got it? Am I still this? I don't know, man. Like, th- those aren't the sort of questions you want to be asking as a fighter. And you can say whatever you want afterwards on social media. We heard what we heard. He looks, just, he looks confused in the ring. It's almost like what he wants to do isn't what's happening out there. He's, whatever he visualizes is not actualizing. And when you do that, it's a camp problem. Don't know if it's a trainer problem. It's definitely a camp problem. But good luck to him. I thought, I thought that card was good. I had to catch up on that one. But you're going Teofimo Lopez into a Jared Anderson, into a Keyshawn Davis, into a Xander Zayas. Those are for all the different sort of subplots that underpin that card. That's a solid card. That's a card you don't get on the zone. Now, I don't know if I'm being slightly biased towards American prospects here, but I think Jared Anderson's a problem for most people. People are saying that he's all wrong for Daniel Dubois. I wouldn't necessarily say that. I get annoyed when people start talking in those terms because you've got to remember what Dubois has been through. You know, I mean, Dubois has been through guys like Joe Joyce. He's already been through guys like Nathan Gorman. He's had benchmark fights. He's won some, he's lost some. Jared Anderson hasn't been there yet. So when people talk about Jared Anderson being all wrong for Dubois, I'm like, what would Jared Anderson do if he felt a full one-two from Daniel Dubois? He wouldn't be the same guy you're seeing with the highlight reel knockdowns. If he was, Jesus, <laughs> we would all roll out the red carpet happily if he could do that to Dubois. If he could stop Daniel Dubois, you shoot straight into the top 10 of the heavyweight division immediately. I just think it's a lot easier said than done. But credit to Bob. like Of all the, the stick Bob's been getting from people like Eddie Hearn saying he's past it, has he still got ambition? Bob Arum can put on solid cards on a week-by-week basis, cards you wouldn't moan about. The global promoter can't do that. He's giving us sheep shearers, goat herders, and whatever whatever else he can get his hands on, which is somewhat disappointing, if I'm being honest. So if we just move from Madison Square Garden all the way to to Tokyo, and Paul Butler versus... Uh, I don't know how to say Inoue. We'll, we'll just say Inoue. I can't even say the... Naoya Inoue. Did I say it properly? Don't know. Um, where do you start with this? When the fight was announced, I think people thought this was going to be a one-sided hiding, right? Um, I never believed that because I don't think Joe Gallagher would ever put a guy in for a one-sided beating. You yeah, know, we're not... I mean, there, there are other gyms in the Northwest that would send you abroad for a stag, Do I don't think Gallagher's gym is one of them. So Butler goes in with Inoue, who is a monstrous puncher. And I think I tweeted this the other day and I said what I really like about Inoue is is, I don't know if he's done it himself or if they've just told him. He's almost found this range where his punches have the most effect and he doesn't step outside of that. He doesn't step inside of that. He stays within that range. And because of that, all of those shots have an effect. And that seemed to be the challenge Butler had. It was like he's not quite mid-range. He's not quite long-range. But he's somewhere in between, and I can't quite measure it. Because Paul's approach obviously is engage as little as possible, which makes sense. Try and take it to the second half of the fight and see if you, if you can find something in a new way that you can exploit. But actually, the fight ended up being a bit more like... If you remember the Golovkin versus Martin Murray fight. And, Mar- and you were watching that fight going, will, will Martin Murray... Get to the end, and you were hoping he would. And I don't. What round was it? Was it ten or eleven? Where eventually he succumbed, and the ref had to stop it. And this felt a bit like that, where Inoue's punches were having an effect, and it was about whether Butler could keep the tank full enough to get to the end. And by round eleven, it sort of became clear that he couldn't, and Inoue just went into overdrive, started picking him off, like amazing shot selection, like Terence Crawford. There's a beauty to guys who, who target every punch. Because you could be, like, some, some boxers will just bombard you until the ref has no choice but to stop. But then there are other guys who are just hurting you with every shot. And the ref is looking, going, ah, oh, no, these are all hurtful shots. You've got to stop this one. So am I going to make fun of Paul Butler for getting stopped by a new way? No. That was probably how the fight was going to end. But the fact that Paul Butler acquitted himself better than most. As a British boxing fan, we should applaud that. I don't know what you do next with Butler at bantamweight. We're not really a bantamweight type country, so I don't know what you do now with Paul. Yeah, you know, that'll be up to to him and his team to to determine. But if you're a new way now, you might want to try super bantam. Because I just think he's he's so good, like freakishly, freakishly good. He's so good. Is he pound for pound number one? no and the reason i say that isn't down to anything he does in the ring it's just down to are those the kind of guys that we're going to reward you know can i mean can these little guy knockouts really equate to melt welterweight middleweight light heavyweight knockouts i don't necessarily know he's in that discussion like he's definitely top five in that circle maybe even top three but the number one uh, a little bit hard for me to swallow at bantamweight being number one, which goes against the whole idea of pound for pound. It's why I'm not really sold on the idea of pound for pound. Like I'm not sold on the idea of unifications anymore, but big, big tip of the hat to him for, for dominating where he can dominate. Just like to see him at super bantam, see what he can do, see if he can get as far as um, featherweight. And then we shouldn't demand anything beyond that. Like anything, anything up to featherweight and he's done himself proud, but you know, let's, Let's give due respect and credit to, to a master technician. I think a lot of current boxers can learn from a new way how to get the right kind of talk into your punches, how to get the right kind of distance. All these things that make someone truly elite, like Crawford, how he manages distance. Errol Spence, how he manages distance. The Charles, how they manage distance. Um, Usik, how he manages distance. All of these guys, even Fury, that's what. That's one of the factors that separates guys who are good from guys who are great. The ability to control even the smallest of variables, to an infin, infinitesimal degree. There's a real skill in that. There's a real. Um, I wasn't say it's not holy. It's there's a real magic to that, and that's what we should be applauding. So, kudos to Inuwa for that. Um, I think I've probably done a once round the houses on that. Um, what else has been happening in my world so we had a show on friday night um so once with boxing club home show I invited denzel bentley down to to hand out the trophies um what a superstar that guy is because he didn't have to do that like he could have even said to me mate i'm tired i've had a long year i need to rest he came out for that more more than hospitable to everyone that wanted a picture everyone that wanted to talk boxing with him more than hospitable I don't know how many other guys are doing that actively. I know guys like Spider do it, Josh Boatsy do it, Dan Aziz will do it. There are a lot of guys who do stuff like this, and it's, it's appreciated. But there are also guys who, once they turn pro, disappear. So they never get to impart knowledge and wisdom into the next generation coming through. Because Denzel's able to look at these kids and go, see where you guys are now, you're starting before I did. So you have a real chance to do more than I did. In the amateurs, and maybe more than I will do in the pros, but you got to take it seriously. Like he, I don't understand why BT don't get behind Denzel more. He he's that everyday champion, that everyday hero, walking walking in the footsteps of Harold Eastman, Howard Eastman. Sorry, not Harold, Howard Eastman, and probably on track to surpass him. I I still think there's a world title out there for Denzel if he sticks to it. And one of the things you've got to like about Denzel is he shows up on time, man. Jeez. Nothing will give you more confidence in a boxer showing up on time. Shows you that they care. He was fantastic. Uh, absolutely fantastic. And uh, so, I know the next question is, you know, when is he going to be back on the pod? I told him we can do it anytime. We are meant to do it, him, me and Dan, but Dan's fighting on the, he's fighting on Saturday actually. So it's hard. I know what Dan's like when he gets to Christmas. So Dan may be on holiday somewhere. Or I think he's going to go straight to Sparber Turbiev, actually. So I'm going to see if we can do it at some point over Christmas. I don't know if we'll be able to. It will have to be remote, but we'll find a way to do it because I think that would be good content, actually. I think that would be, be a good way to, to summarize the year because both guys have had really eventful years. So let's just see what happens. I'm going to put it to them today and we'll see what happens on that one. But look, tip of the slipper to, to one's worth. It's an interesting journey. So people are saying to me, are you coaching? I help out. That's how I describe it. Because when I say I help out, no one, believe, no one gets suspicious I want to take over a club, which I don't really want to do. I just, honestly, I just want to help develop and make better boxers. That's really where my head is at. You know, let me share what I've learned so that, you know, I can help London boxing grow and evolve too. So, yeah, I got the phone call, you know, because I was, I was happily semi-retired, right? I'd had quite a, a soul-destroying final year with the Lodge. Just the lack of respect. I've talked about it before. No point in laboring it. The lack of respect, which is probably born out of a lack of love that they had for me, because they're like, you don't deserve. that. that that's kind of, There are people at the Lodge. You don't believe I deserve to be where I am in the sport. But if you've known me long enough, you'll know that none of this has come easy. None of it's come easy. I've just got where I've got to in life through being consistent, showing up when others don't show up. And that's what my brand's built on. So I was happily being semi-retired, helping on a few special projects here and there, getting boxes ready in certain areas. It was fun. And I got a phone call. And it was like, man, what are you doing? And I was like, semi-retired. Do you want to come back and coach? I was like, no. Not full-time anyway. I just want to, I want to come in when it works for me. And when it doesn't work for me, I don't show up. And people can say that's a lack of commitment. It's not. It's an appreciation that a lot of life passed me by while I was obsessed with making champions. And I, I didn't get much from that. Right? I didn't. I didn't get a knighthood. No one sent me a WBC title. No one sent me a medal. No one sent me anything. And I've used this quote before, but I remember being sat with Mick in 2011, and I was talking about going into coaching properly, and Mick just said, it will never give you what you give it. And he said to me, my advice to you, do it for as long as you enjoy it, and when you don't, leave it. And I've always taken him at his word, and he's been right. I see so many of my friends who coach now, and they're scared to step off the hamster wheel because... They are so, their identity is so interwoven with being a coach, being a judge, being an official, that if they stop that, they almost think that they disappear. I'm like, nah, there's more to life. That's always been my attitude. There's more to life than effing around at shows. I don't even like going to shows. It's nice to bump into old guys and see the the new kids come through, but... Probably he get me at a home show, tops. You won't see me traveling around the country anymore. It's just not rewarding for me. So through all of this, I come and Jim's rough and ready, but it's brilliant. bunch of kids, um, all different backgrounds, different stories, and just watching them grow and progress. Because boxing does that. Like the framework for boxing is universal. Everyone's got to go through the same process. Whether you're rich, poor, male, female, doesn't matter you will go through the same process. And if you do that, you'll get roughly the same rewards. So I've I've really enjoyed watching that evolution and it culminated in the show on Saturday and there were some amazing performances. And there were some performances that guys will now understand while we say what we say as trainers and coaches. So I love that. Um, as I keep saying, you know, I've always got to reach out. If anyone's got any bags that they don't use, the heavier, the better. Like I mean, we, the, could happily do with those i think my attitude is you can only attract fighters up to the size of your bag so if you don't have a proper heavy bag you can't have the big guys come in because it gets frustrating hitting a bag from pillar to post so anyone who's got those sorts of like bags and whatnot hey let me know man or if you can get access to them just let me know um it's always good to to try and keep the equipment moving across the sport if you see what i mean you know what else should we touch on uh do you want me to touch on Fury? I can't can't stay out the news, right? One week you're fighting Joshua, one week you're not fighting Joshua. Then you're fighting Joshua again. Then you're not fighting Joshua. You're never going to fight Joshua. You just want to fight Joshua and retire. Bored. And now and now you got Usyk coming. And actually, and I've enjoyed Usyk's response. The fact that he's now making a clear separation between Tyson Fury and Luke Fury. <laughs> So Tyson Fury is the loudmouth in front of the camera. Luke Fury is the guy who's asking about the family and asking about things in Ukraine. I think that's brilliant. And that's, that's something no one else has done before. So you know that would have probably moved Fury off his uh, off his equilibrium a little bit. So watching how those mind games play out, and you never know, he may actually just come out and do a presser in full English just to confuse Tyson. But that that looks like the fight most likely to happen. I don't hold... I don't hold much hope because I think Eddie will find a way to ruin it for no other reason than he loves doing stuff like that. Um, you got Joshua talking about he'd rather fight Dillian than Fury. No surprise there. Joshua talking about, yeah, me and Deontay can definitely happen in 2023. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Like it could have happened in 2017, 2016, 2015, 2014. Any year going backwards. maybe maybe we need to ban boxing media maybe life was better before ifl because we did not have to hear all this nonsense we just got told when fights were announced and that was it because i'm bored of all of this i'm just bored of it they could you know bin signed these fights already just sign the damn things please uh Is Joshua still in America? Does anyone know? Because he was doing the tour again, wasn't he? So he went to Verge's gym. Then he went to... Did he go to Derek James or Ronnie Shields? Probably both. And then he was in Philly. And now I have no idea where he is. But the rumors are still that he's going to come to the UK and train with Roy Jones Jr. I've heard Roy's got accommodations sorted in the UK. So that may just be for working with Eubank. But you imagine that if, if you're going to be here... Wouldn't you work with Joshua as well? Man, yeah. Absolute confusion. Uh, Shakur Stevenson can't get a dance partner for his WBC Eliminator at 135 pounds. No more damning indictment than the fact that a prospect is struggling. We can't call him a prospect anymore, can you? Because he was a world champion, but he is struggling for a dance partner. (laughs) I thought people fought for a prize, not for ego yeah but this all points to boxing being an absolute mess right we've got jamal Charlo versus tim zoo that looks like a decent enough fight but Charlo never gets the love he deserves because he's also undisputed another another reason to get rid of these undisputed fights because they just don't drive any value people don't care unless you're one of their heroes you being undisputed means absolutely nothing did nothing for Usyk's numbers will do nothing for Chalo's numbers will do nothing for Canelo's numbers. I can pretty much damn near guarantee that all these guys are wasting their time. Can we just talk about what on earth has happened to Josh Taylor? Go back a couple of years. We were talking about Josh Taylor giving Crawford trouble. We were talking about Josh Taylor being that British guy who could go undisputed at 140 and get close to that at 147. And now we're like, you've got to fight Jack Cattrall in March. Jack Cattrall. You notice in all of this talk at 140, no one has talked about Jack Cattrall being a world champion. They've talked about Progre, they've talked about Taylor, they've talked about Tank, they've talked about Teofimo, no one's talked about Jack Cattrall, because we generally accept that Cattrall's not at that level. Yeah, here's Josh Taylor having to prove himself against Jack Cattrall. Well, what an absolute waste of a year. What an absolute waste of a year. What a waste of a career, like... You just feel that Josh could have been better managed and better handled. That, 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 that knocking about with Ben Davidson didn't do him any good either. It was career worst performance working with Ben. And now he's with this other guy. I don't know, this McInally guy. Can't judge him. Don't know him. Um, you know, I, I guess you can't go back to Shane now, can you? Because that's when he was at his best. And Shane understood him. Shane knew what it took to get Josh to the start line. and That's a very underrated quality in a trainer. That ability to know what it takes, both from a physical perspective and a mental perspective, to get someone on the start line at their best. And I don't think Taylor's had that since he's left Shane. And that's, yeah, that's just disappointing, if I'm being honest with you. But, you know, Josh has done a lot of damage to his own brand through not reading the room and not understanding how boxing fans work. You know, I think he thought that, you know, we were just blindly loyal to him forever and a day, which isn't necessarily the case. Guys, can I close off by talking about Lawrence Okoli and the Okoli situation? Which, as titillating as has been, it's what an absolute, what an absolute, what an absolute mess, what an absolute disaster. And who would have thought that Lawrence Okoli would be the hill on which the Eddie Hearn reputation would die? On? Because I definitely didn't. So let's let's just start with where we're at. Lawrence does the media rounds. I think he does IFL and he does Boxing King media. The Boxing King media interview is obviously a higher quality one because there's no ass kissing and there's no trying to play both sides off against each other. So credit to Boxing King media for doing their thing. And so to summarize Lawrence's argument, Lawrence's argument is this. I signed a contract that had a definite start date and a definite end date. I got past the end date with no intention to resign. Let me rephrase that actually. I got to the end date of my contract and in the process of getting to that end date, I tried to renegotiate with Matchroom. And as part of that process, I looked at where else I could go. And there was a very tempting offer from Sky, which I presented, To Eddie Hearn in good faith yeah, because you wouldn't do it otherwise in good faith I said look here's what they are offering me I don't need you to match that but can we at least get somewhere close to that and Eddie said nah we ain't going to do that we've got one more fight on the contract and let's see and so I think Lawrence's argument back was I don't know if you've got one more fight we've done all the contracted fights the date is done there's not one fight that I said no to right so that's Lawrence's position. So based on that, what Lawrence is saying is I don't have to fight for matchroom anymore. The contract is done. We didn't agree to an extension. Well, he's saying he didn't agree to an extension. And so that's the tone of the interview. There's, there's all sorts of other stuff about, you know, Eddie demanded 500 grand for Lawrence to leave. And the sort of stuff that often happens behind the scenes when egos involved, people just start talking nonsense. Think of everything I've done for you. You know, you wouldn't have got anything like this at Frank or anyone else. He, Eddie turned into a jilted ex-girlfriend from, from what I'm hearing in that meeting. And it got pretty uh, effeminate is how I would describe it. And so, so Lawrence then goes, look, guys, check through the paperwork. I'll be on solid ground. I think the paperwork was also checked by somebody else. I don't want to reveal names because it may add fuel to the fire. But someone else was able to verify to interested parties that Lawrence was out of his contract. And it really turns upon whether he's done the required number of fights or whether there's one more owed because he wasn't able to fight Glavatsky during the pandemic, right? And so here you have these kind of inconclusive arguments on either side. So then Eddie gets asked the question. And Eddie being Eddie, unable to read the room, unable to understand where the chess pieces are on the board. you know, He's playing chess like Stevie Wonder at the moment. So he comes out on the offensive and says what Lawrence says is incorrect. So my first thing is, why would Lawrence come out and lie? He doesn't need to. Yeah, he, he'll do what he does regardless. He doesn't need to. So now you're starting to get the impression that the, the real liar is the man from Essex. As always. And so, 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 as the discussion with Eddie goes on, the, the main themes of what Eddie said, you can break it down to these. One, look at what we did for Lawrence. We delivered everything we said we would for Lawrence, which isn't actually true, by the way. If you have any idea how many fights Lawrence was promised that were never actually completed on, you'd realize Eddie's lied continuously to Lawrence. He has promised and not delivered on numerous occasions. I'm not at liberty to talk about those, but he has. Ask yourself the question why the hell wasn't Lawrence on that last AJ card? Yeah, if you're a 258 guy, why aren't they looking after you? And they didn't look after him, they knew the situation. It's almost as if they were keeping him to elongate his contract. It looks like collusion. And if I can figure that out, I'm sure the people around Lawrence can figure that out. It's a dirty, dirty game. So the first argument is look at everything we did for him, which, like I said, isn't true. They should have done more. He should have unified by now. Macabre was available for a hundred grand for unification. They didn't even push forward on that. Second thing he said was, I've lost money on this guy. At least help me make some of that money back, right? Is the subtext of what Eddie was saying. Uh, What money have you lost exactly? When he headlined against Chamberlain, you didn't lose money there. I don't think Eddie's lost money where Lawrence is headlined because I don't know if there's been money to lose. So in net terms, I'd like to see the numbers because don't forget, Chamberlain versus Akole did... It did half the O2 comfortably. So it did about 10, 11,000. And you weren't paying those guys half a million each. So where did the rest of the money go? How did you lose money on Lawrence? I don't think you did. I just don't believe you can. And the third argument is we have a contract. He should see it out. Just like we stuck to our terms in the contract. He has to stick to his terms. And well, Masham didn't stick to their terms at all. Because where's the unification fight? Hearn hasn't even talked about making a unification fight for Lawrence. Lawrence's plan was always simple. Get me a world championship. In my next fight, I want to unify. After that, I am done at cruiserweight. Let's go to heavyweight. He wanted to do this with Matchroom. That's who he wanted to do it with. And when Matchroom weren't delivering, his team said, well, let's go and see where the options are. Sky said, we will do it and we will pay you what we think you are worth. So you stop at this and you go, well, what, why is Eddie doing what he's doing? And the simple answer is, Lawrence was there to be a blocker. That's what Lawrence was there for. Lawrence was there, you position him to say, right, he can fight React, That knocks down one of the sky pillars. You can move him up to heavyweight. and You can start having him make noise around Joyce and Dubois. right? So he now acts as a blocker. He was just a pawn to Eddie. Eddie just needed him there so he could maneuver his chess pieces the way he wanted. That's all Lawrence was there for. Lawrence's career advancement and development was a secondary consideration to Hearn. That's both heartbreaking and disappointing. Just a piece of meat. That's what he was there for. At heavyweight, he would have been a blocker. And he would have been a formidable and ferocious blocker. At Sky, now think about this. You go to Sky and Sky get you that Makabu fight. Like I said, Makabu's available for about 100 grand. You can unify. You go up to heavyweight, all of a sudden there's a chance to push this guy through the IBF ladder. He's already WBO champion, right? So he's already got that mandatory spot if he needs it, but Joe's parked up there now so you can go another route while you wait lawrence has all the chips eddie knew this that wbo win was to get him up as a mandatory at heavyweight that's all eddie's hanging on to that's what eddie's hanging on to is the idea that if i keep lawrence it doesn't matter if he unifies or not as soon as he moves up to heavyweight he becomes mandatory for that belt whether he goes before or after joe's neither here nor there but he'll be a mandatory like Usyk was That's what Hearn's hanging on to. That's why he wants half a million quid. Because he's like, that's a, that's, I can make that money back on any world title fight in the heavyweight division. But here's where Hearn went wrong. He accused Sky of interference in the contract that he has with Lawrence Acoli. And he jumped the gun. So when he makes these threats, like the interfering party will be dealt with, there's nothing you can deal with because at no point has Lawrence breached his contract. To the best of my knowledge, Matchroom haven't offered him a fight. The WBO, seeing what's happening, have said this is going straight to purse bids. You know, it's your mandatory defense is going to go to purse bids. There's every chance Matchroom will lose that bid. Now, are they losing it so they can still say we've got one more fight with him? I don't know. I really don't know. And it's it's confusing because if you're matchroom, you should just say, right, we'll pay David Light X and Lawrence X, fight's done. And I think Lawrence will take that to leave. But they want to drag it out because, like I said, it's that WBO shot that's valuable to her. Whoever has that WBO strap is mandatory heavyweight. He'll find a way to try and take that off Lawrence. That's what I don't agree with. So he says Sky and Boxer are interfering in the contract, but Lawrence has performed his contract. He hasn't breached his contract. You can't interfere in a contract if it hasn't been breached. And I know all these armchair boxing experts will be sat there like, yeah, but you can't just talk to people about jumping ship. It happens every day. I can walk into a pub and say, mate, what do you do for a living? Yeah, I'm a chippy. Oh, I man, how much are they paying you an hour? Oh, it's price work, man. I'm, I'm doing 50 quid a day, you know, just laying data rail. You know, per, so 50 quid per room, we'll say. If I, if I say, mate, if you come over next door, we're doing it for 65 quid a day, same size flats. You may say none, and I promise these guys I'm going to do it for a month here. But I'm going to still say, yo, that offer's open whenever you want it. That's not interfering in a contract because you're still going to go to the same place the next day and do what you're supposed to do. So unless he can prove that Sky said, do not fight on matchroom. There's no interference. And this is what Eddie Hearn does. And it's hard to prove it. Like he did it with the Connor Ben thing where he said, there's a process they're going through. I can't talk about it. The lawyers are dealing with it. So here's an area where the lawyers are not dealing with anything because there has been no breach. You can't send a letter to Sky saying, we don't want you to talk to Lawrence. You can't do that. They're allowed to talk to whoever they want to. And all they did is show Lawrence a proposal. This is what you could get. This is the deal on offer. Lawrence didn't sign it. So he hasn't breached anything. And this is Eddie's problem. He's been outsmarted by everybody involved here. And so now he's stuck in this position where Even if Lawrence were to breach the contract, he couldn't sue for economic damages because he's come out in the media and said, I've lost money on Lawrence. So one of the key principles in law when it comes to damages is you have a duty to mitigate your losses. Why would you have an additional fight with somebody who loses you money? That's not mitigating your losses. In fact, you're making your losses worse the judge played that argument back to frank warren in the ricky burns case by the way and that's why frank got no damages because they said to frank you're largely unprofitable anyway so what's the economic damage of not having ricky burns versus having ricky burns the answer is none because you're a loss-making operation and ricky allegedly still had three fights to go with frank It's very hard to find for tortious interference, which is what Eddie would be alleging. It is very, very hard to do that because you gotta show so many different things. You gotta show he'd have to show that Sky deliberately set out to to interfere in that contract. And interfere means cause somebody not to perform their contractual obligations. I don't think he can do that. He then has to say they knew what they were doing there was a clear plan behind this or they were reckless as to the effect of their actions. Don't think he can do that. Then he has to demonstrate economic damage suffered from the breach of the contract. By his own definition, he can't do that. So what is Eddie Hearn doing is he can only sue to get an injunction to say, well, Lawrence can't box until this is resolved. What he can't do is he can't can't do anything else because he said he lost money on Lawrence. If Sky can make money on Lawrence, Eddie's not entitled to that money because that's not money he would have made. So all of that conversation was Eddie Hearn, what do they call it in America? Like a nothing burger, right? He tried to flex his muscles and say, I'm in the right position here. The truth is he's not. He's got to pay Lawrence again. And what he can't do is he can't underpay Lawrence. That's what he can't do. He has to pay whatever's in the contract. So you've got to pay once again. Lawrence will be under no duty to promote the fight. He'll just show up and do what he has to do. He, he'll mail it in. So this is just a nasty situation all around. If Eddie Hearn really is the global promoter, if he is the number one promoter in the world, he would just let him go. This, this is vindictive. This is, like I said, this is jilted ex-girlfriend behavior. This is the sort of thing that I don't think a 43 year old man who's heading into his 44th year. I don't think that's how you behave as a man. It's embarrassing overall. And anyone who's giving him credence in the sense, you wouldn't have this if this was your line of work. Can you imagine you worked and they say, and you said, look, my contract says I've got a three month notice period. And they said, well, yeah, but you're going to have to stay here for another six months until we find your replacement. And it's like, "Well, I don't want to but at that point. They can't force you to, they can't. What should happen at this point is Robert Smith should, interf- should intervene. There should be a mediation panel at the board that sorts out contract disputes between boxers and promoters and whoever. And there should be a mediation board that's full of people who understand boxing, who understand the law, and they can look through this and go, well, yes, you have got a fight left, or no, you haven't got a fight left. And that should be binding on all parties. This could have been resolved ages ago. You need a panel like this because it solves everything. It would have solved the Ted Bamiazi chamberlain one. It solves all of these problems up front. But we get to watch Eddie Hearn bury himself again. Look, and this is just a symptom of how far he's sunk. And I said it right at the beginning of the show. He's become Frank Warren from 2010, 2011. The guy he used to mock and make fun of. Now we mock and make fun of him. And this all boils down to this. He made Matchroom a 100% about him. No one knows Frank Smith, no one cares about Frank Smith. We just know that this is the guy that's been with Emily Eubank for ages and still ain't wifed her off yet. That's what we know for absolute certain. Eddie's not scalable. So he's reached that limit of what he can do now. You know, he always wanted to be the smartest guy in the room, and that's all well and good until you are the smartest guy in the room and you now realize I've got no one smart around me. Why? why? Instead of making fun out of Martin Theobald with the Transformers duvets and all that stuff, he, that's the first guy he should have rung and said, I need someone alongside me who's going to stop me blowing myself up. And Martin would have been the perfect guy for that. Instead, he makes fun of people like that. But someone like a Martin Theobald would have kept Matchroom Relevant. You know I mean, that's his superpower. That, that's his superpower. Now, Martin's a guy that will make sure I's are dotted and T's are crossed comfortably. He'd have stopped her blowing himself up. He would have been a good conciliary. But instead, you know, Eddie thinks he knows everything. So I'm going to sit here and casually watch this guy blow himself up. That's it. Now, and it's going to come sooner or later because now people are realizing what Broner said right at the beginning. Eddie Hearn's got you guys fighting on an app. Not on a TV screen, on an app. That's it. You're fighting on an app that not many people have. So no one even knows you're fighting anymore. You're reliant on that guy from Essex talking about you for you to be seen and known. And people are beginning to realize Sky Sports is where it's at. BT Sport is where it's at. Because you're getting the coverage. You're getting people putting their back into making you somebody. Guys like Dev Sarney are grinding out there. Dev, hope you enjoy the run, mate. They're grinding out there. You know, like I said last time, Stuart from Grassroots Boxing's out there doing his thing as well. Everyone's kind of pushing people forward. Apart from Matchroom. They've got their staples where we just get Emily Bridges in the same bikini she wore last time. I don't know if she even washes that thing either. But yeah, watching the decline of Eddie Hearn is is comical. And all that saved him is there isn't a young guy coming through. Like Ben Shalom's not the guy that's going to knock Hearn off his perch. But he's a guy that can do a lot of damage to that perch. Long may it continue. And I think that's probably a good point to wrap up. I can't believe I've been talking for this long um i'm absolutely fried mentally now but i will say boxer i know you guys listen to this can i get some tickets for saturday because i need to go to bournemouth and it's dawned on me that i haven't bought any tickets i don't even think you can buy them now so anyone who's got those tickets mate just dm me call me please i need to get there i need to watch dan aziz put the beating on rocky fielding i just need to see that one and i know i'll say guys let me sign off now and say take care